lyrics there and the just the doctrine that is propounded there. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're looking this afternoon at verses 12 through 16. Just a, a short, simple passage with a very simple message. Uh, this morning we considered the notion that many of us feel like frauds. We even considered kind of how, you know, we have this tendency towards personal declension, that if you were to remove the gospel from our lives, remove Christ from us, we would, we would immediately fall back into sin. That is the one thing that is preserving us. And so oftentimes we feel like frauds when we fall back into sin time and time again. This afternoon we'll consider the notion that many of us feel useless. I think that's just as prevalent as well. We consider maybe inadequate. Maybe we feel like we are unprepared for the task that God has given us as a church. Um, Maybe we feel disqualified by our sin. Whatever it is, though, we feel this underlying unproductiveness in our lives, that we're not really producing anything of value, of lasting value for the kingdom. And maybe we're looking at the wrong things. Maybe we're looking at, um, you know, big extravagant numbers or something like that and, and not seeing it, and so we feel unproductive. But I do think that sometimes... As we read through the Gospels and and look at the life and ministry of Jesus or even the life of the the apostles whom he called to himself and some of the epistles of the New Testament, we sort of compound the guilt and shame because we see so much productivity. We see so much happening around the life of Christ, so much service and compassion and pouring him out day in and day out, sleepless nights. And then we look at our own lives and we think, what am I doing? Um, uh, Hopefully that's not the message we hear uh, tonight. But, you know, considering the gathering interest in Jesus' healing ministry, more and more people are learning about what Jesus is doing. And everywhere he goes, there's a greater crowd gathering around him. Considering that and then also the growing hostility towards his ministry. Right, that his opposition is rising up and becoming more and more ferocious in their attacks against him. Uh, their, their opposition is increasing. And we wonder, how, how will Jesus ever accomplish his redemptive plan? Well, of course, those of you that know how the story ends in the Gospels, you know that this is all part of it. Right? That this is all part of his humiliation and his leading up to the cross is, is dealing with the opposition. But put yourselves in this time and place, in this early part of his ministry. Put yourself there and, and, and begin to wonder, when are we going to find the victory? When are we going to get to the end here? And what we see is that his mission, the mission of Jesus, was fueled by prayer. And it was accomplished through ordinary men. His mission was fueled by prayer and accomplished through ordinary men. And that mission carries on well after his ascension. It's an ongoing mission. We are involved in Christ's mission. He uses ordinary men. He's continuing to use ordinary men. And that mission is continuing to be fueled by prayer. So really our application this afternoon is is just twofold. that, That we would be useful that we would find ourselves in prayer so that we might be useful. But before we read it, once again, let's ask the Lord 
for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this to opportunity once again to open it up before us. And we ask that you would open this text to us. That we would behold wonderful things in your law. And that you would open us to the truths of this text. That we would be open and willing to be transformed and changed and to apply this into our lives. Lord, we long to glorify you. We long to apply this text in a very real way. And Lord, we know that that's only possible by your spirit. And so even now, begin to use your word to cut deep into our our hearts, to bring conviction and comfort. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 16, or 12 through 16. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we, we want to focus initially just on this verse 12, right? The fuel for mission being prayer. It says, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. We've seen this before. Why is he praying now? Why is he taking time to get away from the crowd to go up into a mountain to pray? And, he, and this is really the only time where it says specifically that he prayed all night. You know, we might imply from other passages that it happens in other places. In history, uh, but this is where it directly says he prayed all through the night. Why was he praying now? Well, I think it's obvious from the context that he was praying for direction from the Lord about the men he was he was going to choose as his apostles. But let's consider a little bit here about his prayer life. Right? How many times has Jesus separated himself from his disciples in order to pray? Pulling away, going into an isolated location. To pray, And is there any significant connection between the events that precede those isolated times of prayer or the events that follow? Is there a significant connection between them? Uh, you know, I'm just kind of wondering out loud at that, but that's something to analyze as you look through the Gospels. Typically, the prayer, has a, the, the prayer is acknowledged here. It's not like Jesus stopped praying on other days or at other times. You know, he was praying throughout his ministry. But it's specifically acknowledged here because there's a, a significance to it. Right? There's, there's something about this particular prayer that he was, he was seeking direction for. But if you look back at chapter 3, verse 21, we read... Um, now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. So he himself was baptized and now is praying at his own baptism. He's taking the time to to engage in, in prayer 
That's obviously a significant time. The very beginning of his ministry is bathed in prayer. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is sort of in between his cleansing of the leper and right before his healing of the paralytic who was dropped down through the roof. He takes time to, in between those episodes, it says he, he, he departed and got away, withdrew to desolate places in order to pray. Then we come to this section that we just read, going up to a mountain to pray, praying all night. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 18, we see, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And so he's, he's praying alone, and then his disciples find him, and then he, he begins to engage them with questions about his, his person, who he is. Do they recognize who he is? Do the crowds recognize him as the Christ? Uh, later on in that same chapter, verse 28, we read, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. This is the... Mount of Transfiguration. He takes these men with him to go and pray, and they see his glory there. Then chapter 11, verse 1, you see, again, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And now he begins to teach them the Lord's Prayer. So, clearly, the implication is that he began his ministry in prayer He's continuing his ministry in prayer. It's become such so obvious to the disciples that this is the fuel for his ministry that they say, we need to, we need to learn how to pray in this way. Teach us to pray the way you pray. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1. We'll just look at two more. But chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is the parable of the persistent widow who, who continues to knock, who continues to ask. And these are the things that, 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 um, where Jesus is beginning to instruct his people how to pray. Right? He's, he's taught them the Lord's Prayer. He's now teaching them um, what their attitude in prayer should be, that they should be persistently coming before the Lord, bringing their petitions to him. And then chapter 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see there he's, his life at the end of his ministry here, knowing and recognizing that the days are coming um, where he'll be arrested and tried. He goes once again to isolate himself in prayer. God. And so, obviously, the implication here is that Jesus' ministry began and is continuing in prayerful dependence upon God. And it's kind of easy to beat ourselves up about a lack of prayer in our own lives. Right, to, to look at how we spent our day, even this day, set apart by the Lord to engage with him in fellowship and in worship and communion. And we wonder, how much time did we really spend in prayer? Um, I think it's, it's helpful for us to not so much think about the things that we 
and think of it as a as a duty, but a but an opportunity. And I think it's the same thing with with how we honor the the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day. If we're constantly harping about what you should and shouldn't do on this day, and it it removes some of the joy of that the day has been set aside for. It's the market day of the soul, as the Puritans called it. Prayer is communion with our triune God. It's it's a huge privilege, right? That we that we simply forego all too often spending time with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a a book by John Owen, Communion with God, where he emphasizes this that prayer and, and communion and fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how the how the um, broken up into sections, emphasizing each role of the Trinity in our communion. And in the introduction to that book, Kelly Capick, the editor, says this, While a saint's consistency in prayer, corporate worship, and biblical meditation are not things that make God love him more or less, such activities tend to foster the beautiful experience of communion with God. Right. Giving into temptations and neglecting devotion to God threaten the communion, but not the union. You see, it's not, it's not that we're trying to earn justification, not trying to earn God's favor in our lives. We're not trying to earn union with Christ. We have union with Christ. And if we forsake prayer, if we forsake corporate worship, we don't lose that union, but we do lose the beauty of the communion that has been offered to us. We lose something there in our sanctification. Why is it difficult to pray? You know, we typically don't need to be convinced of the importance of prayer. We see it very evident all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, right, that prayer is, is important, that, that every believer spends time in prayer. That is how we commune with God. We don't need to be convinced of that, but it does seem that we need to better understand its value. We need to have a greater experience, even as we talked about this morning, of uh, that really knowing God in, a, in an experiential way. Not that we're striving for that experience, but as we commune with him, we're filled with joy. We're filled with contentment or comfort, whatever it is, even conviction. So here's where where I've tried to to spend time in my own prayer life reflecting upon more and more. As you prepare to pray, as you go to, to pray, you're intentionally sitting down and going to spend time in prayer. Before you begin speaking, simply acknowledge, recognize who you're praying to, who you're praying through who is praying with and for you in that moment. That is the work of the triune God. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And so the Son, he lives to intercede for us. We can come to him with our guilt and our shame. He already knows it. We can come with our joys and we know that he rejoices with us. We can come in our sorrow and we know that he weeps with us. 
I, and, and if we recognize it, if we acknowledge that, it, I, I, I think our prayer life will be tremendously blessed. To be honest, I, I think the reason why Jesus isolated himself and spent time with his, you know, with the Father in those isolated moments, in one sense, was so that we might never feel isolated. That we might know that we have a Savior who's always with us, praying alongside us. So if prayer characterized Jesus' ministry, it should characterize our ministry too. And I, and I am fully convinced that that. It was a thing that early church was devoted to. Prayer was something that characterized the early church. Something that they did every time they gathered together. And that if there is any kind of testimony that this church could leave, a legacy that this church could leave, it should be that it's a place of prayer. It's a place where we cry out in utter dependence upon God through prayer. That we are a people of prayer. That this is a house of prayer. That's not going to draw in vast crowds. Prayer meetings, unfortunately, don't tend to do that. But if we're dependent upon God, it's not about who we're praying alongside. It's who we're praying to. It's who we're crying out to. Who we're trusting in. So... Obviously, prayer was the fuel for Jesus' ministry, and then he uses men. It's the tool for the mission. So the fuel for the mission is prayer. The tool for the mission is the 12 people that he calls alongside himself. And we could say a lot about these individuals and all the names. We could go into detail, at least most of them. There's a few that we really don't know much about, uh, other than that they're included in these lists. Uh, But for the most part, we have some acknowledgement of, of even their characteristics, their their personalities, their quirks, uh, just through the the ways that they're talked about in the Gospels. Um, but Luke is extremely brief in this passage. He doesn't elaborate on why Jesus chose these 12 out of the whole crowd of disciples. So he gathers his disciples together, those who follow him. He gathers them together, and then he selects. He, the word in Greek is literally elect. He's electing 12 men to join him and to become apostles, to be sent out by him. And, and so the emphasis from Luke's point of view is upon Jesus, right? Choosing these 12. Jesus chose those who were low and despised in culture. None of them. Uh, were recognized for having a great amount of authority or wealth. And he chose them to be his closest companions. He chose these 12 precise men, 12 being a, a key number, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. With all their obvious weaknesses, he chose them to carry out this mission. And he uses them, Luke 22 uh, 28 through 30. We read this. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
You see the connection there. He's chosen 12 men and who represent the 12 tribes of Israel who will be rewarded for serving alongside him. And it would have been a, a, a fearful privilege for these men to be called by Jesus. Think about the opportunities that you've been given to be a witness for Christ, to minister alongside him. You know, I, I think of my own opportunities. I had had many opportunities to share my testimony in, in high school. Um, I would have to say most of them were utter failures. Um, if I was in front of people, I fumbled through it, anxious and scared and nervous. I remember one time there was a rally taking place with um, high school students and all the youth groups in the valley came together and my youth pastor forgot to ask someone to give their testimony. So he pulls me aside and says, hey, um, we're going to be calling people up in, in a little bit and uh, just say something about your experience, and, you know, and and don't tell them that I just told you to do this five minutes ago, you know, and I said, OK, and then. As everything happened and everything was underway, I totally missed my cue to go up on on stage and to do it. And, and uh, it would have been a disaster anyways, I'm sure of it. The Lord was preserving me. But um, but there was one opportunity in particular that had a very encouraging impact upon my life. And not just my testimony, I was actually my senior year in high school. I went to Mexico every Easter break and... And that senior year, I was um, given the chance to preach a sermon uh, during an evening service at one of the churches there. And thankfully, you have interpreters when you're there in Mexico. They speak through you, so it can sound a lot more lively, I'm sure, than I than my own stuttering effort and stammering through uh, this sermon. But but I remember afterwards the pastor coming up to me and 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 giving me um, just a, a great encouragement talking about the impact that the sermon had on his life. And and that really was the confirmation that I was seeking to enter into ministry myself or to pursue ministry. Uh, again, we, we all have opportunities, right, that God affords us to share our testimony with others, to share um, the gospel. And, and I think it's, it's important to recognize that we don't really need more information. Just like for for prayer, we don't really need more information about the importance of prayer. We need to recognize the value of it. And in this case, we don't need more information about the mission Jesus has given us. Probably. More than likely, we simply need to have the confidence that he can and will use us in our efforts. That if we are simply faithful, if we uh, make ourselves available to God. Right? And I think we need to hear testimonies of God using ordinary men. Uh, you, you see it all the time in, in, in Scripture. God using ordinary men to change the world. And we need to be reminded of how God used, has used us in the past. We need to hold on to those times. Someone we're, we shouldn't be hindered by the idea that we need to be someone we're not. That we, sh- that, that we need to be someone we're, 
that that's not consistent with our own personality. God used a completely a group of people that that really had nothing in common. <laughs> in fact, two in particular would have despised each other in culture. You know, one being a tax collector, the other being a a zealot against the government would have would have they would have been at each other's throats had Jesus not called them to minister alongside him. And so God brings together people with vastly different talents and different callings and different different ways of being used. Our goal and our role is to simply seek those opportunities, right? To to be available. Right, we're not trying to be someone we're not. And I do think that there's probably a connection here between these two ideas. That prayer is the fuel for mission. And that men, ordinary men and women, are the tools for mission. And here's what I think the question we should be asking. Is it, isn't it possible that our lack of usefulness is directly related to our lack of prayerfulness? If the mission of Jesus was fueled by prayer and accomplished through ordinary men, then the question is, do we believe that? Do we pray with the knowledge that God hears us and has a desire to use us for the advancement of his kingdom? He has a purpose for us. You see, when God called you to himself, he had a purpose in mind. And so the application is is pretty easy to understand. It's to seek the Lord in prayer and to go, to be available. I'm not saying necessarily we all called to go out into the mission field, but our neighbors, to go into our at the Lord's yard, introduce ourselves, uh, to be used by God, to trust that the Lord will accomplish some aspect of his mission through us. 